This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. In my lab, we specialize in brain cells. So we add factors to drive the cells to become brain tissues, and then they self-organize in three dimensions, forming these brain uh, organoids. As they become more and more complex, uh, you can see that they start to synchronize and they start generating signals, electrical signals, that actually mimics um, human neurodevelopment. So we can actually capture that in a dish inside the lab. That's Alison Mawatri. He's figured out a way to grow little clumps of human brain cells about the size of the brain of a bee. He hopes these brain organoids will help figure out how real brains develop in the early human embryo and how that development sometimes goes wrong, perhaps contributing to conditions like autism or epilepsy. This is so great to be talking to you because your work is fascinating to me and, I, and I'm sure to millions of others. You're creating brains in a dish. Well, are they brains? Are they little mini brains? How, how would you describe them? Yeah, so the exactly scientific term is brain organoid, which is a miniaturized version of the tissue of the brain. Um, so I think the term mini brain sometimes it might be a little misleading because we don't have like an entire brain structure in there. It's not like my brain compared to yours. It's not a small brain, <laughs> but, but it looks, it, it appears like a brain, or in some ways it works like a brain, apparently. Yeah, so that's, that's the fascinating part, yeah. In, in some aspects, it behaves like, like the brain. There are limitations, though, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating tool, and I think the most uh, important aspect is that we didn't develop that ourselves. I mean, the scientists were just following whatever the cells wanted to do. So we start with um, skin cells from, from, from people. And by activating only four genes in, in, inside that skin cells, we can turn them back into these uh, embryonic-like uh, stem cells that have the ability to become any tissue of the body. Since they could become any cell in the body, how come you don't have little mini kidneys? That's a great question. So the way we do that uh, was actually pioneered by um, a Japanese uh, researcher, uh, Sasai, who told us, he teaches us how to add extrinsic factors in the juice where we grow these cells that guides them uh, to the fate that we want. So we add factors to drive the cells to become brain tissues, and then they self-organize in three dimensions, forming these brain uh, organoids. And you can see the brain cells in a Petri dish start to oscillate in unison. Yeah. As they start to mature, you can see that uh, the arborization of these brain cells become more and more complex. At certain points, they start communicating to each other. You can actually record the spikes that are, in the beginning, quite sparse and random. But as they become more and more complex, uh, you can see that they start to synchronize and they start generating signals, electrical signals, that actually mimics um, human neurodevelopment. 
So we can actually capture that in a dish inside the lab. That really brings up an interesting question is, what are you learning and what do you hope to learn further? Yeah, the, the biggest motivation is to study uh, diseases that actually started in uterus because these are hard to study. If you take mm. uh, autism or even epilepsy, they always start when you are an embryo in a fetal brain. That's when the neurons start to wire up start to uh, form circuitries that will later on uh, impact the behaviors that you have. Um, so how to study that if they happens in uterus? So the reason why we are failing um, to treat neurological disorders is because we are lacking a very reliable model. And I'm not saying that the brain organoids will solve everything, but I think it's a complementary model um, to the uh, toolkit that researchers have to understand how the brain works. I believe I, I've read that you started with a, a skin sample from the father of an autistic child. Was that deliberate? Did you were you, were you looking for something to learn for about autism, or did you surprise yourself? No, no, I do have a personal interest on, on autism. So part of my motivation is to understand autism. I have a son with autism. And uh, so we recruit families. These families, they donate uh, tissues to the research. And sometimes we do ask uh, donations from controls or neurotypicals. And these are people that are not affected. So we can compare the organoids derived from individuals with autism, from organoids that were derived from skin cells, uh, reprogrammed from neurotypical individuals. So we can compare. Uh. So we work with certain genetic subtypes. And some of them uh, display, display very clear uh, morphological or anatomical alterations if you look for the neuronal arborization or even the number of synapses. Um, some of those neurons, they, they uh, connect less with uh, the other neighbor neurons, uh, forming less connections that will result in an impaired um, communication between neurons. So the network is affected. And this all happens at these very early stages in development. That seems a far cry from studying the brains of Neanderthals. But what made you want to do that? There are two motivations, basically. One is um, to understand the complexity of the human brain. Um, among all other species, we, modern humans, are the ones that are dramatically changed the environment um, using technology. So what makes the human brain so different? Um, and so that's part of the question. The other motivation is if we understand that, if we understand how this complexity arises, we might understand why our human brain is so susceptible to mental disorders like autism. Mm -hmm. So we postulated that there is a trade-off. Um, in order to achieve the complexity of the human brain, we become susceptible to mental disorders. So understanding the stages that evolution took to get us to that complexity level might help us to understand not only the origins of these mental disorders, but, but how to better treat it. I think that the organoids uh, come as a, is a nice handy tool um, to explore that issue. To mimic the, the Neanderthal brain, you introduce 
a few genes found in the Neanderthal brain? Is that in Neanderthal sequencing? Is that correct? Um, let me rephrase that. We start from a genomic perspective by comparing the genomes that are now available through the fossil record, uh, the genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans, to modern humans. And we ask the following question. What are the differences uh, that we see that is only specific to our species, that no other species, including the Neanderthals and Denisovans, um, contain? Uh, we ask, what are the uniqueness of the human genome? And we end up with differences in 61 genes only. 61 genes are different between us and the Neanderthals and all other species. Well, that's not many. That's true. It's not many. The interesting part is, what are those genes? <laughs> because yeah, um, right. the numbers, uh, when, when you look at the numbers, it seems like neglectable. But when you look what are these genes doing, that's quite interesting. So, for example, I, I focus on, on the neuro side. Um, if you look in genes that might be contributing to um, neurodevelopment, uh, we find synaptic genes, um, we found uh, olfactory receptors, and then we found this very interesting one called NOVA1. And that's a master regulator. It regulates the activity of hundreds of downstream genes. So we thought that that one is kind of a critical one because if you messed up with that one, there are hundreds of other genes that will change as well. So that's why we selected that specific one. And what was done was we use one of the, so we neanderthalize the cell so it contains the archaic variant of the gene. Once we did that, we then induce the cells to become brain organoids. And we ask, what is the difference between the brain organoids from modern humans and the brain organoids carrying the ancestral variant? So by no means is a Neanderthal cell, by no means is a Neanderthal brain organoid. What we have is a modern human brain organoid carrying a single ancestral or, 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 or archaic uh, genetic variant in the NOVA1 gene. Have you found important differences between us that throw light on our ancestry? Yeah. So I, I will tell you what we find, um, and I'll tell you uh, what I think it is, um, and making clear that this is pure speculation. <laughs> right. Good, good. So the brain organoid that carries the archaic version of the novel one uh, show us some very interesting alterations. So it, it changes how neurodevelopment happens. Um, and lead to the networks of neurons to mature much faster. So we have a faster maturation of these networks. So this is the data. It's a single gene, a single alteration. I think most of uh, the geneticists will agree that a single gene does not make us human, but definitely that alteration seems to have like an importance here. Um, so it contributes to how our brain is wired. So why now? Why this early maturation into the networks. So here is something that um, uh, I, I've been thinking about. And again, I mean, it's a speculation, it's a hypothesis. We have to, to test that in different ways. But this early maturation might suggest that um, the species carrying the archaic version of NOVA1 um, have a very early gestational time or maturation time to the point that uh, would be something similar, for example, to a chimpanzee. 
I remember looking at the um, uh, 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 Spark documentary that you participate uh, very clearly that you demonstrate um, over there that chimpanzees, um, baby chimpanzee, can outsmart a human baby. Um, so I think that's something that is uh, suggestive here as well. So perhaps uh, the species that have this archaic version of Nova 1 have this early maturation, so the uh, the progeny or the babies can actually be ready uh, to explore the environment much earlier. But we, modern humans, our babies take so long for mature. It requires so much care. We are talking about years of caring um, for mm. these brains to be mature and become independent. Um, and I think that alteration contributes to that delay in maturation. And a consequence of a delay maturation is a higher level of complexity. So um, our hypothesis is now that uh, that single alteration in OVA1 really drives the maturation of the network um, to something that is closer to a chimpanzee and not to a human. A major difference that I'm getting a grasp of is that our cousins, the Neanderthals, had uh, the ability to mature to a great extent in the womb, but we go on maturing afterwards. So a lot of our maturation is due to the feedback from the environment when we're out of the mother's body. And you're suggesting that that can help us get more complex circuitry. I hadn't made that connection before. That's interesting. Yep. Yep. So that's what the data is uh, pointing. That's our uh, way to speculate on what the data means. Um, of course, I mean, this is it, this is hard to prove uh, because, again, networks do not, do not fossilize. Uh, there is no way to go back in time and, and, and really prove that hypothesis. So we have to continue to find indirect ways to prove or disprove that hypothesis. And that's, that's for the future. That's what um, we are planning to do. Uh, also, for example, I'm talking about a single gene. Uh, what about if we start combining all the other 61 genetic variants? Mm. Will we still see the same thing or this difference will go away? Um, right. So that's the kind of experiments that we are following up now. What about socialization? Did, did you find that circuits necessary for socialization might not have developed as much in the Neanderthals as in us? Or is that overreaching? I think it's, it, it is definitely overreaching. I mean, it, as anything in this field is so new, it's, everything is so um, uh, fresh now. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I think you have a point. The type of organoid that we use, it's a cortical organoid. And the cortex is really um, something that uh, is uh, heavily implicated in socialization. So it's the cortex uh, that evolve or, 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 or grow so much more in humans than in other species. And, and that ties to our ability to socialize. So it might be that um, because of that alteration in, in how the cortex circuitry is formed, that they might have like a problems with socialization. And this is also, by the way, also seen in autism. We know that the cortex is malfunctioning in certain types of autism, leading to socialization problems. So I think you are you are right on, on point. We just we are lacking more evidence that support this idea. But there is something about this model that will enable you to explore that. I hope so. I think um, the model is um, improving e every time. So we now have even more complex 
brain organoids. We are combining other brain regions to form like a more sophisticated circuitries. Um, we are able to vascularize these organoids so we can grow them a little bit bigger. We can keep them um, healthy for uh, longer periods of time. So you can see that um, there is room for improvement in this model. And as we improve the model, we are getting closer and closer to the reality, which is the human brain, that will allow us um, to kind of uh, confirm or not some of these um, uh, hypotheses. When we come back from our break, Alison Moatry tells me how his little clumps of human brain cells are learning how to drive a robot. And I ask him what happens if his brain organoids become conscious, and how would he know? This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. And also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters and interacts with science and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Alison Muatri. One of the interesting things about your work is how far-ranging it is. Human brain disorders, Neanderthals, even a robot. This is extraordinary, astonishing, in fact, that you've got, somehow you've got electrical signals coming from the, the brain organoid in the dish, going to a computer and then going to the robot. The little brain organoid is driving the robot around the table? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you asked about that. I, I find that fascinating. So, uh, again, I mean, the motivation here, um, it is to understand how the brain uh, starts to learn so we can help people with learning disabilities. Uh-huh. So is that happening now? Have you been able to get the robot to give feedback to the organoid? Yeah, yeah, it's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. That's really exciting. Yeah, it's. It, <laughs> I think it's one of the most exciting parts of the lab now. We are all very excited with uh, this technology. Tell me a little bit, if you can, about how you get a signal, an electrical signal, out of the dish mm-hmm. into into the robot and back again from the robot. Because if the robot is sending back information about its its leg is hitting the wall and the organoid in the dish says, oh, well, we won't do that again, or pull back now and go this other way and try that, then you really have something that seems to be, it seems possible that it might be learning. Yep, yep. Um, And that's exactly what uh, we want to confirm. I mean, if we prove that, it's going to be amazing. So we are very careful on, on designing the experiments 
to actually try to prove us wrong. So the only um, possible explanation would be a learning from the organoids. So what do you do? You stick a probe in the dish and get an electrical signal or what? How do you do that? Yeah, that's that's more or less it. I mean, you have the organoid and it, uh, it, 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 it has like 2.5 million neurons in there. So it's the equivalent of a bee brain um, and you stick electrodes on it or you just uh, place the electrodes surrounding these organoids, and the electrodes will start to record or capture the uh, passing electrical activity to, to those neurons. So as they do that, we can record over time, and we know, I mean, how many electrodes are active, and we created these networks. So we have um, uh, ma- mathematical models that uh, simulate how these uh, networks are uh, getting organized, and we see that throughout um, the time that they get more and more complex to the point where they start generating these um, uh, oscillatory behaviors. So that uh, we use that information um, to code uh, for a computer, uh, to code in a computer, to teach a robot how to move. Uh, it's a robot with four legs that we have, how to coordinate these four legs to move forward. Um, and then we add sensor information into the robot, for example, the robot ha- has now infrared detection. So it gets close to the wall uh, and uh, by uh, what, before it, it actually reaches the wall, um, when they are about 10 centimeters before reaching the wall, uh, it sends a signal to these electrodes. And the electrodes now, instead of recording, start to stimulate the organoid. Um, and some of the other electrodes will record how the stimulation changes this network. So once the computer detected that the organoid uh, were stimulated and the circuitry has changed, it sent a second message um, to the robot, such as walk back. Um, and by doing that systematically, we hope that the, um, the organoid um, will do it uh, spontaneously or will anticipate um, uh, that the signal is coming and change the network without that many stimulation. So that would be the first indication of some kind of anticipation um, or, 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 or a very uh, raw way of learning. As you speak about this, it seems to me, it sounds to me like this little thing the size of a bee brain and, or not much bigger, right? Right. It doesn't contain the circuits in the human brain that are responsible for memory and consolidating information so that it can send out a, a, a signal that's that's different to reverse the previous signal and that kind of thing. How does it function as though it had that short-term memory? That's a great question, Alan. And, and I think that's, um, that's why I'm very humbled about this approach um, because it's challenging lots of information that we learn as a neuroscientist. Um, and we believe so hard on it um, that we start taking for granted. Um, and these uh, tiny blobs of cells are telling us that uh, there are more possibilities. Um, so, um, for example, that we don't need a very organized uh, network to execute the same kind of actions, or at least some of the actions of a more mature and organized brain, mm. that the minimal information is there. And what we have is actually an empty canvas uh, where we can teach that uh, simple network of neurons to execute uh, things that we want them to do. Um, so that was a, a, an eye-opener for me because initially I thought that 
the only way for this uh, research to progress was to have um, a really good model of the brain uh, with a cortex, a hippocampus, and trying to mimic all the circuitry that the human brain does so I can, I can do the same thing. And, um, and these organoids are telling me that, no, I mean, on the same way that there are humans with uh, massive brain damage walking around, um, there are humans with a fraction of the cortex that have um, uh, jobs, they have families, they are perfectly normal. So that's a tremendous amount of plasticity. And these organoids are telling us that that plasticity, it's there from the early stages of neurodevelopment. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just be um, open-minded to the data, let the data driving us on, on what we find. Because if we do the opposite, um, it's going to be hard for us to move on. If you are waiting for the perfect brain model, it, it, it's going to take like a couple of years until we get there. So we better start learning something from the model we have. Yeah, I actually experienced what you were just talking about. Uh, someone, a young woman who had only half of her brain and she had a job, she she functioned normally, she, she even had... And an extraordinary ability to tell you what day of the week it was on any date in history. That's amazing. You make me wonder, and I know this is a highly speculative question, how far can this go? Can you make brains that think, that make decisions, and that is there an unavoidable risk of developing little brains that feel and hurt? And are you in danger, without even realizing you're doing it perhaps, in danger of creating something in a dish whose only reason for being is to do what you want it to do, but it's, it's a blob of pain to itself? That raises ethical questions, I think. Do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, we think a lot about that. Uh, and we have um, people from the ethical center, we have philosophers all working with us and, and, and watching how the research develops. Um, so we are prepared for those questions. I think the biggest risk would be to reach to a point of uh, consciousness or uh, at least self-aware if one of those brain organoids ever reached that point. And it's it, it's a possibility. I, I think um, I do not discard that. As we we increase the complexity of this tissue, the tissue will eventually do what it does better, which is to acquire um, consciousness about uh, the surrounding. So that might be crossing the ethical limit. Um, and uh, if that that happens, um, and we are developing ways to test if that's um, ever happened or not. Um, uh, if that happens, we need to determine what's the moral status of a brain organoid. Um, in the same way as we do with animal models for research, we might have to determine um, how to grow them. How many do we need uh, to answer a specific uh, biological question? Um, how do discard them? How should we dispose them mm -hmm. uh, in a more humanistic way? So these are the kind of questions that we ask when we design a protocol with animals, and it might follow the same idea for brain organoids. But we are not quite there yet. I think we are, um, we are still far from, from that point, um, but it might come into the future, and I think it's better to be prepared 
it's better to discuss the issues right now. Yeah, it, now now is the time to think about what could go terribly wrong because when it go, if it does go terribly wrong, it's it's like too late. Yeah, but. One of the difficulties, it seems to me, and, and again, this is far into the future, so it's probably not a problem now, but just as it's hard to know that another human is suffering, unless they tell you, or if they're conscious even, if they're aware of their surroundings, how can you possibly tell with a lump in a dish? Mm-hmm. So you might be, you might have something that is living in pain for as long as you're using it. Yeah, no, you are, you are on top. Um, these are one of the, the challenges that we have. Um, and it's hard to do that. I mean, even uh, people uh, in coma, I mean, how do we know that they are aware? How do right. we know that they are in pain? So these are hard questions. So there are lots of indirect ways, uh, sometimes recording some of these brain waves that will change um, depending on your conscious state. So that might be like an indirect way. Um, and, and the same for pain. There are some, um, for example, biochemical readouts that, that you can do to see if pain receptors are stimulated um, and what is, uh, if, if you are crossing a specific threshold or not. None of these will actually tell for sure, 100% sure, that these organoids uh, are self-aware or have conscious or not, but are indirect ways uh, to start testing them and if one of these tests become positive, I think um, we all need to pause and, and reflect on, on where we are. This has been so, so interesting to me. Before we scoot, I'd just like to know where you think you're going to go next with this. What, what questions are driving you as a next step? Um, one of the biggest motivation now is on the translational aspect, um, how to help millions of people suffering from neurological disorders, how to help millions of autistic individuals that are struggling in life, people with seizures that cannot have a normal life because of that. And we don't have good treatments. We don't have personalized treatment. We just don't know much about the human brain to help those people. So I'm committed um, to make like a more translational uh, uh, go into the lab where we use those models really to understand better the the pathophysiology of the diseases um, and, and test new treatments. This could be uh, novel pharmacological treatments. This could be in forms of gene therapy, if you know the gene that's affected. So all of these strategies um, we can test in our brain organoid model, and we are putting them to good use. And I, I understand, I think, I think I have this right, that we know many of the factors contributing to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, we don't know for sure which of those factors is crucial and how, how it works, how it causes the disorder. It sounds like you'd be able to introduce those factors one at a time, poke around in them, and find out what's really going wrong so you could then introduce a therapy. Is that, is that right? You are right, yeah. And, and this is not only restricted to my lab. There are so many labs now looking into this technology and, and helping to improve and attacking all these uh, diseases. So I'm very optimistic with the future. 
That's great. Thank, thank you. Thank you for bringing me up to date on so much of this. It's really exciting. Before we end our show, we always end with seven quick questions that, that, that invite seven quick answers. And uh, are you game? Are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. As you look back on your life, can you remember the first thing you were curious about? Yeah, was uh, the light bulb. I always thought that the light bulb was sucking the darkness. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. And you mean it, it doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> it's too unclear to me. <laughs> Amazing. What made you want to be a scientist? Um, to help other people. Uh, what part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? Um, discussing the uh, experimental design with my students. And as a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? I think all the time when we have like a very unusual, interesting data, um, these are the best moments, yeah. And what was your worst moment? Um, when I missed a grant deadline. <laughs> 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 I can understand that. <laughs> what gives you confidence? Uh, reproducibility of the experiments. I mean, by doing it over and over again gives me confidence. Last question. How do you think we can help more people enjoy a love of science? By having more conversations with you, Alan. <laughs> you turn that into a tricky compliment. <laughs> well, you, this conversation has helped me enjoy science even more, and I really appreciate you being on with me. Super. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Alison Moatri is a Brazilian citizen and a professor at the University of California, San Diego, where he's also the director of the UCSD Stem Cell Program. He has several videos explaining his research, and he even has his own YouTube channel. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Alex Schnell. She recently repeated a version of the famous marshmallow test in which children who can resist the immediate temptation of one marshmallow get more if they can wait. Except that Alex didn't do the test with children. She did it with cuttlefish. She was inspired by a particular giant female cuttlefish named Franklin who would spray her with water every morning when she came into the lab. Franklin, the cuttlefish, she had a really frequent habit of drenching me in the morning when I walked past uh, and she only squirted me in the morning when 
experiments were taking place but would refrain from squirting at me in the evening when I would be in the lab to feed her dinner. So I guess the selective squirting made me wonder whether the cuttlefish had simply learnt to associate my morning visits with something she didn't like or whether there was an element of self-control and planning involved. And I guess the self-control answered that, that they do have the capacity to exert self-control was very surprising. I know what you're thinking. How do you do the marshmallow test with cuttlefish? Well, to find out and to explore the implications of a cuttlefish having self-control, listen in on Thursday to Science Clear and Vivid. Science Clear and Vivid.